Maybe some of you saw it. It's a couple watching that big flat screen TV. Wrapped. And the common the commentary from the TV show is this week on the amazing race to enlightenment. Are Jim and Susie can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? <laughs> I know they're designing one, you know, Zen boot camp reality show, you know. (laughs) Who can stay there the longest? (laughs) Who's the most compassionate? So um, I think this might relate just as much as the cartoon related to what I want to talk about. Someone told me this story here, some one of the volunteers who works here, um, heard this story about a third grader who was fascinated by Buddhism and uh, in their spare time would, you know, pull through encyclopedias trying to get information about Buddhism and the Buddha and India and all that stuff. And um, one day he, he gets hold of a globe of, you know, of the world and he's really wrapped, you know, looking, studying India and, you know, really just absorbed but looking a little concerned. And uh, this person goes up to the uh, this third grader and says, what, what, what's the matter? What's, what's... He says, you know, I've been looking and studying this map of India and I can't find the state of Nirvana. It's not on here. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> May they find it. Not on a globe. So, um, well, I guess it does relate somehow to this topic of this this place that we span between you know, heaven and earth. It's a good one metaphor. You know, as human beings, we we had this amazing capacity, you know, for openness and awareness and potentiality and able to sense into the vastness and the cosmos and the universe and universal dimensions within ourselves uh, as we open, as we awaken, as we become more attuned. And we're also very mired in the, in the nitty-gritty of our, of our lives, of our bodies, of our work, of our relationships, of community, in the earth, of the earth. And it's a very interesting place to inhabit, you know, that we have these, we have, you know, we're multi, multi-dimensional beings. You know. And mostly we don't, we're not so aware, I think, of that. We're more aware of, you know, the, the mundane, as I said. But we can, t- we can taste that. We all touch moments, you know, when we're out in nature, in meditation, Maybe with a loved one or children or seeing the world through the eyes of a child, you know, listening to a great piece of music. And we can be touched by something bigger than ourselves, you know, something more beautiful, more mysterious, more magical. And then, you know, we you know, maybe we we come in from having that expansive thing in the garden, you know, some a moment of looking at the stars and we, you know, go to the bathroom and we see a new wrinkle. It's like, oh my God, I got a new wrinkle. I don't know, where did that come from? I wasn't seizing up that part of my face. You know. you know, so we go, you know, very easily between the you know, expansive to the contracted. Rumi has this great poem, part of a poem um, called Tending Two Shops. He says, live in the nowhere that you came from even though you have an address here. Live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere, and eyes that judge distances of high and low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap. Getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore, but you're the free swimming fish. So I think you will probably know which of your shops that you want to inhabit and which you don't. 
So, and at the same time, you know, maybe we don't need to close both shop, one of the shops, you know, because we can't leave this worldly plane. We can't leave this mortal coil until it's our, until it's our time. So we have to make peace with that. You know, there's a lot of religious history that's gotten caught up in a division between these two dimensions. They're not really two separate dimensions, but we can speak of them as that for tonight. There was a whole movement, I think I mentioned it last week, in India, in the you know, middle of the, I don't know, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, where there was a reaction to this split of the world and spirit, of mind and matter, of seeing nirvana as somewhere else and, and samsara, this, this earthly realm that we inhabit, as somehow lesser, somehow inferior, some, some obstacle, you know, and um, gave rise to, to the various tantric movements that, want, that saw that both these, both, both samsara and nirvana are not different, they're the same. We find freedom and expanse and beauty and mystery within our form, within our bodies, through our senses, through our mind, not through going, escaping somewhere else. I read a poem from one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver. Speaks to this a little, about how we can know these different realms within ourselves. This is called Reckless Poem. Today again I am hardly myself. You know that feeling? Wake up. Today again, I am hardly myself. It happens over and over. It is heaven sent. It flows through me like the blue wave. Green leaves, and you may believe this or not, have once or twice burst from the tips of my fingers, somewhere deep in the woods, in the reckless seizure of spring. Though, of course, I also know that other song, the sweet passion of oneness. Just yesterday, I watched an ant crossing a path through the tumble pines she toiled, and I thought she will never live another life but this one. And I thought, if she lives her life with all her strength, is she not wonderful and wise? And I continued this up the miraculous pyramid of everything until I came to myself. And still, even in the northern woods, on these hills of sand, I have flown from the window of myself to become white heron, gray whale, fox, and camel. Oh, sometimes already my body has felt like the body of a flower. Sometimes already my heart is a red parrot perched among strange dark trees, flapping and screaming. So that's one way that we can uh, get a sense of not being so bound in this sense of our identity, the sense of our the shop that limits us, you know, that Rumi speaks to. So a lot of the teachers from spiritual traditions are often reminding us about who we are, what we are, to not forget in the busyness of our lives and the intricacies of relationships and the importance of our work and our service and our duties of parenting or whatever we do, that we don't forget this other perspective, this other aspect of ourselves. Why we come to spiritual teachings and places and practices to remind us, you know, all these all these teachings that we ever say remind us, we remind ourselves, you know, of what's important, of what's of value, of what gives real meaning and purpose and, and depth. This is from Kala Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher. He says, There is a reality and you are that reality. When you realize this, you see that you are nothing, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. There is a reality, you are that reality. When we really know that we're not different from that reality, we see that we are everything and nothing at the same time. That's the mystery of being human. So I imagine you've all tasted in your own ways, in your own flavor, some inkling of mystery, vastness, openness, oneness, union, through love, through all kinds of different doorways. 
And one of the questions that I am curious about is what we do with those experiences, what, how, how they affect us, what, what, how they ripple through us. Because we can have lots and lots of wonderful experiences, but what's important, certainly from a from a Dharma perspective, is is what how they affect us, how they change us, how they make us live differently, wisely, more kindly. So I imagine um, most of you were privy to the story of um, what's her name, Jill Scott Taylor. I think that's her name, the, the neuroscientist. Jill Bolte Taylor, who went through that stroke of insight. People familiar with that? Put your hands up who know this story, stroke of insight. So maybe half of you. It's a great story. Um, it was very in vogue a couple of years ago. Um, a little louder. Could we get a little more sound? Thank you. So it's a great story of um, how she went through a. She had a stroke. And um, through the process of having a stroke, she opened to this this dimension of her being, mind, heart, which she called nirvana. It was her understanding of nirvana. Even though she was a very rational, scientifically trained uh, brain scientist. And now we're just going to quote a couple of pieces from one of her talks. Just to give an example of how we can, you know, how many experiences can tip us over, often near-death experiences when we get radically sick. She says, in that moment, my left hemisphere brain chatter went totally silent. Total silence. And just at first, I was shocked to find myself inside of a silent mind. But then I was immediately captivated by the magnificence of the energy around me, because I could no longer identify the boundaries of my body. I felt enormous and expensive. I felt one with all the energy that was, and it was beautiful there. I remember this is a scientist we're talking about, who's not not used to using this language of oneness and unity. And she says, goes on later. She says, when I went, when I woke later that afternoon, I was shocked to discover that I was still alive. She was going through tremendous pain as uh, as, she, as her brain was, as the stroke was, um, uh, as the, the blood was hemorrhaging in her brain. She says, I just wanted to escape because I could not identify the position of my body in space. I felt enormous and expansive like a genie just liberated from a bottle. My spirit soared free like a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria. Nirvana, I said to myself. I found nirvana. And there's no way I could ever be able to squeeze the enormousness of myself back into my tiny little body. But then I realized I'm still alive. I'm still alive and I found nirvana. And if I'm still alive, then everybody who's alive can find nirvana. I pictured a world filled with beautiful, peaceful, compassionate, loving people, all bathing in nirvana. So I love I love this story because it's so dramatic. She goes from just having a normal day at the uh, or just a normal morning at, at work, just about to get on a treadmill, and then she has this brain hemorrhage, stroke, and touches these really beautiful, spacious, boundless dimensions. And her story goes on to describe how she struggles, how she goes back and forth. The, the, the thinking left brain, the rational mind comes back and struggles with, no, you can't possibly be nirvana. You know, you've got to go to work and you do the dishes. And... So those experiences you know, leave us with the question, who are we? You know, what are we if we have, what does that tell us about ourselves? You know, we usually have a very fixed, defined sense of who we are. You know, I'm this person, I'm a teacher, I'm a man, I'm a, you know, from such and such a place. And, and then we have these, these moments that kind of blow the lid off. Where we see maybe I'm not quite who I thought I was, you know. And then one of the problems with these experiences is they're often very blissful. You notice that? These experiences where we sort of step outside of ourselves momentarily. They're usually very peaceful, very calm, very you know, still, and the sense of unity, a sense of love. And then, of course, you know, they fade, and 
and we spend the rest of our lives trying to get back there. You know, it was so juicy, it was so yummy, it was so divine. Joseph Goldstein talks about uh, spending, he, he went to in, India and was meditating in Bodh Gaya and uh, was there for a period of time with his teacher Manindraji and, and got to some very peaceful, profound states, and particularly one particular sort of very blissful white light kind of place. And then he had some family emergency, he had to uh, go home back to the States and, and then when he came back, he said he spent the next two years of his meditation practice trying to get back to that place of the white light and the stillness and the bliss. And, and guess what happened? He didn't get there. Because <laughs> whenever we start grasping for something, it's the very thing that gets in the way of that state opening in the first place. The reason those states open, appear is because we're in that place of openness. We're not controlling, we don't have an agenda, we're not fixing, we're not tight. There's just open relaxation, curiosity presence, balance of mind, and then these things can, can open. So he likes to tell that story to save all of us the trouble of chasing back those great meditation peak moments that we had, you know, whenever, and that we've spent a lot of time chasing after. So as I mentioned in my talk a few weeks ago, you know, one of the places that most people experience some greater sense of something outside of themselves, something vaster, something more boundless, is in nature. You know, the study that was done, I think I mentioned that 80% of people's experiences of God or the divine happened outdoors. You know, just walking down the hill, I was up the hill this afternoon working and came down the hill and there's this beautiful swaying grasses, you know, the, the grasses are the peak height, you know, the oak grasses and all the other different kinds of grasses and and just exquisite. You know, it's very, and it brings the mind into silence. You know, it's watching the deers feed and the ravens hovering around. And you know, we can in those moments when we're outdoors. You know, many times we can touch something, be touched. This is from a student on a meditation retreat from the East Coast. She says. Kate was drawn to going alone to the pond where she often tramps with her dogs and kids. She said she scrambled up the rocks and sat amidst the trees, gazing in solitude at the pond. And she recounts, Before I knew it, I was drawn into the stillness. It was so much easier to feel the tranquility being on my own. The trees softly blowing in the wind began to wave in unison with my breath. Suddenly there was no inside or no outside. Nothing anywhere felt separate. We, the universe, and I were breathing together, alive, pulsating. The trees danced and sang and kept playing with me. The experience probably only lasted a minute, though it lives with me always. So, I, people know what I'm talking about here when we're talking about these experiences. I just want to make sure you know, there's nothing. Okay, I'm in the right room, talking to the right crowd. It's good. I was sweating there for a moment. Like, what the hell is this guy on about? Like, I'm Joe Blow and I'm, you know, I work in the bank down the road. So one question I have for you, you know, is, is what, are the, what are the vehicles, what, what are the doorways, what are the portals for you that open you to this, you know? For some it's through, through love, through opening the heart, through, through intense union with, with another, with a loved one, with a, with, a, with a child. For some it's through service, through giving of yourself and just, you know, really just letting that pull through you. Um, some it's through nature, some it's through, through creativity, through art. People lose themselves in their, in their painting and their, their sculpting and their, some through music, through the creation of music. You know. That's why I would love to be around live music because there's something very... Um, you know, I was at, I was at a, uh, 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 what was I at? I was at a Five Rhythms class the other day and, and the teacher said, um, feel into how the teacher, how the, how the, um, the musicians love every note that they play. There's a love comes through the music. And that's another way of, of, of touching the, these things. You know, what transports you? Now, thinking of the movie Star Trek, you know, going to frontiers where no man has gone before, you know. Some people go watch Star Trek. That's, that's the way, that as a metaphor, it takes us into these different dimensions, you know. 
Can't wait to see the movie. So, um, anybody want to say what? What are your doorways? What? 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 what yeah. Yeah, for me it's rock climbing. Ah, rock climbing. I was going to say, yes, yeah, sport exercise like that. Yeah, rock climbing is very, yeah. <laughs> rock climbing, she said, is a doorway. Do you want to say anything more about the rock climbing? Well, I, I just, I, I completely agree with you about um, nature being the doorway. I've always been really connected to the mountains, and I feel like it immediately transports me into such a state of peace. And I st- it's so curious to me because... That's something I've been struggling with so much that I am here today for the first time and you're mm-hmm. actually talking about that mm-hmm. because that's exactly what I've been struggling with for the last two months so much because basically every time I come back from rock climbing and I deal with everyday life, I just immediately yeah, just mm-hmm. lose, lose that state of right. peace. So it's, it's challenging. It's yeah. really challenging. Yeah, and that's a great, thank you, it's a great example. You know, the she's talking about how that experience of being in the mountains and rock climbing just opens, you know, just makes the spirit soar. And then the challenge is coming back, coming down the mountain, coming off the rock, coming back into daily life and the nitty gritty. And we can lose that. It can be very painful, that that contraction. You know, we go from these very spacious places and we, and we know what's so painful is we know, we sense that there's more truth to that. There's more reality to that. There's more, there's more truth in it, you know. And it feels like a truer reality in some ways. And then when we come back and we get, you know, just as we ordinarily do, get lost in the, in the complexity of our lives, there's a kind of grief that happens because we disconnected from, from what feels like a source or an opening or a doorway. Anybody else? Any other doorways? Yeah. Um, it's funny because... Uh... The woman was here who sat in the cave for many years. Oh, yeah, uh, Tenzin Palma. She was talking about surfing on the waves. <laughs> and I, 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 I surfed a lot, and I went up and t- told her I felt a little guilty because I enjoyed surfing so much. She goes, oh, no, no. She goes, just be mindful, be aware while you're out there. But as far as the gateway goes, I mean, when, when you're out in, way out in the ocean, because you're into nature too, you're, it's like you're like on the mother or something. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery. Mm-hmm. And then with something like board riding, then you see these waves coming through, and that's like an energy. And you go down it, and then there's the thrill in your body, the embodiment and the thrill of, of riding and going fast. I'm sure uh, skiers get that too on the mm-hmm. snow. Mm-hmm. It's also on, on nature, you know. So that's the whole combination of nature and then embodiment. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And you can meditate with it too, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So surfing... Surfing those waves. So, you know, it's good to reflect on what those doorways are and, and also to reflect on do we make time for that, those things? You know, oh no, I'll get to that when I've done my work and then I clean my house and I've done my emails and I've done my to do list and I've had the cat and, you know, then I'll, you know, crash in bed, <laughs> you know, and then it's the next day and, you know, and then it's. Five years, and then we wonder why we're feeling unhappy or out of touch or feeling contracted or feeling disconnected or out of harmony in some way. So to, to, know, to know what those doorways for ourselves and then to make time for them. You know, we, you know, it's often, it's the, often one of the ironies is we don't make time for that which brings the heart so much joy, so much presence, so much abundance. So what we do give time to is the you know the busy mind, the thinking mind, the the restless mind. The, and that's probably one of the things that drowns out this this greater sense of space and expanse and ease and well-being. You know, because the chattering mind it just fills up any space we have. You know, this is from again from. Um, from Jill Taylor, she says, um, this is after she'd had this big opening, she said, then all of a sudden my left hemisphere comes back online and says, it, and says to me, get dressed, you don't have time for this. And I'm walking around my apartment, I'm thinking, I've got to get to work, I've got to get to work. And I, can I drive? Can I, no, I can't drive. And in that moment, my right arm went totally paralyzed. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. 
And the next thing my brain says to me is, wow, how cool is this? <laughs> how many brain scientists have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside out? And then something crosses my mind, a very familiar thought says, but I'm a very busy woman. I don't have time for a stroke. <laughs> she goes on, you know, that mind takes over, you know. I, you know, I don't have time for this spiritual stuff. All this romance, you know, pie in the sky, expanse, yeah, who cares, whatever. You know, I've got to pay the rent, you know. And my job's on the line and my relationship's on the line or whatever is on the line. There's always something on the line, isn't there? <coughs> Or a few things, you know, weighing it down. So, you know, we're hardwired, the brain's hardwired to see that, um, you know, if, if we have, if, if, you know, in these, in, these, in, these re- in these experiments, they give people um, stimuli, the stimuli that will most draw the attention is the negative stimuli, that which is threatening and fearful. Because that's how we're hardwired, that's how we survive. To notice that which is threatening, potentially dangerous, potentially harmful. You know, and the beautiful flowers in the background behind the tiger, well, who cares about the flowers if the tiger's coming? You know, it's like, forget it, run. So we have to work with that. You know, it's part of what meditation training is. It's a training to, to not be so gripped by all those negative, fear-inducing, catastrophizing, Thoughts that plague us every day. You know, oh my God, what happens if? And oh, what happens if the stock market goes down again? Oh no, what if my daughter, you know, doesn't do well at college? And you know, and we spend a lot of our time thinking of all these terrible scenarios. You know, and for me, I I I think. I feel so appreciative of meditation that, that it can provide a little space. It can, it can provide perspective and a way to work with this mind, this thinking mind that so clouds and don't, can dominate our world. You know, to, even, to, to even know that our mind's busy, that in itself is a great step in perception. To know that we're lost in a thought is radically different than being lost in a thought. Even if we notice we're lost in a thought 5,000 times a day, which is, you know... That's 5,000 more times of not being lost in the trance of our, our mind world. Right? So I like to read this piece from Byron Katie. I'm sure I read it here before, but I, she's so clear about, about the, the impact of the mind. She says, mind gives world, this is a thinking mind she's talking about, mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. We produce endlessly things that aren't actually so. We're very good at that. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. When the thinking mind arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you can question it, if you can see it with mindfulness, it's just a great movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. Here's the story of my life, my drama, my scenario, my yada, yada, yada. And she goes on to say, I don't know anything. I don't have to figure anything out anymore. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere. And now I exist as a don't-know mind. This leaves nothing but peace and joy in my life. Which it does. As we, we train ourselves not to be so embroiled in the grip of the thinking mind, what happens? There's more space. You know, the... The Tibetan masters say, recognize the space between thoughts. There's many, many pauses and spaces between thoughts. Same with recognizing space. There's always, space is everywhere. How many of you noticed the space in the room tonight? Or did you notice the people in the room and the, and the pictures and the Buddhas and the whatever? Right? So it's, a same, it's, a, it's a turning of the, the attention to the space rather than what's filling the space, turn the attention to the space in the mind, the space between thoughts rather than the content of the mind. And the Buddha said, whatever we incline the mind towards, that the mind becomes. So if we incline it towards clutter, guess what happens? We become clutter, cluttery beings, clutter things, <laughs> clutterers. <laughs> 
And if we turn it towards space, it's like, oh, there's actually a lot more space here than I thought there was. You know, I think my mind's kind of going crazy the whole time, but actually it's probably not. There's always gaps. There's always space. There's always moments. So what happens when we, like, like um, scientists, what happens when we momentarily or for longer periods drop out of or withdraw or let go of this, the busyness of the thinking mind, the left brain that's, that does so well at taking care of us and planning and preparing and anticipating and you know, all the things that we do to, to get through our lives, strategize and plan and you know, these necessary things, but of course we, they become, they just take over, you know. They become imperial. You know, it's the mind that it's the thinking mind is kind of imperial, imperialist. It's colonial. You know, it kind of colonizes every aspect of us. So we become like, oh my god, there's no space in here. I need to get away. And then we go, you know, to the desert. It's like, oh my god, my mind's still here. I haven't got away. I've got to get away. <laughs> we go to Hawaii. It's like, oh my god, it's still here. You know. So. So it does, you know, we can't run from ourselves, and we don't need to run from ourselves. We just need to look at ourselves, understand ourselves, you know, work with ourselves, train the mind. And when, we, when we're able to do that, we, we, we touch more moments. In the language of, of, of Jill Taylor, she talks about, you know, we dwell more in the right hemisphere, the hemisphere that's not so fixated on linear time, and um, planning and doing, but more is focused on being. <clears throat> that's not so, you know, dwelling in the past and future, but that's present, that's at ease, that's relaxed, that's open, that's more connected, that's more relaxed and receptive, peaceful, doesn't have a lot of to-do lists. It's more creative. It's not its struggle with the world and reality. It's just being, you know, human being. We forget that part of uh, name, you know, human being. I love that that's part of what we call ourselves, human being. Not human doing. Or human thinking, you know. We're a human being. So we need to practice what we are, <laughs> as it were. If we, can, if, we, if we can practice what we are, we have to or just be what we are. But sometimes to, to be what we are, we have to practice what we are. I wanted to ask you a question. You did. Okay. Can it wait? Sure. Thank you. Okay. So... Um, So being what we are, being what we are. This is from Nisargadatta, a wonderful Advaita teacher. He's speaking about it in the, in the language of love, in terms of being. He says, when you realize the depth and fullness of your love, you know that every living thing and the entire universe are included in your affection. This is the right hemisphere switching to the left hemisphere, when you look at anything as separate from you, which the, the, the thinking mind does, you can't love it because you become afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens the alienation. It's a vicious cycle. Only self-awareness and self-understanding can break it. And then he says, go for it resolutely. So we have to learn how to, to you know, just, just as that voice that came up for the scientists, you know, like, I don't have time to be in Nirvana, now I've got to get to work, you know, with the same voices that come up for us, you know. Oh, I don't have time for this, you know, spacey, spiritual stuff, you know, I've got to, you notice that, notice how that pulls you away, you know, just, when, you, when you, often this happens when we meditate, we, for whatever reason, drop into a moment of quiet, of silence, stillness of space or we start to feel more expanded more spacious 
and very quickly the mind, the thinking mind, will, will immediately remind you of something that you've forgotten. You know, something you've got to strategize before you finish the meditation. You know, something that pulls us away, you know, or, or, or stimulates some fear. Oh no, don't go there, don't go into that. You know, that, what happens when you go into that space? You'll dissolve into a blob. You'll never come back. You know, we've heard about these stories. You know, people go get a cuckoo when they meditate. And we go, really? Wow. By that time, it's gone, you know, it's all over. You know, we're, we're uh, you know, imagining being carted off to the psych ward, you know, and our family coming together. I told you not to meditate too much. I'm always, I find this quite, quite it's fascinating. Um, this in myself is partly why I'm giving this talk because I find this interesting. How we go, we navigate, how we go, we, we expand and contract. It's the nature of the universe: expand and contract. But in this realm, it's very, um, and it's very interesting when it's when it's our own being. So I remember once uh, being with my one of my teachers in, in India, uh, Punjaji, who was a great Advaita teacher, and um, there was a beautiful presence around him and a lovely. Um, just a lovely field. Of, he had a very powerful presence that transmitted, and a lot of peace, a lot of freedom, a lot of joy, and uh, it was a very liberating time for me in my in my practice and my in my mind, and um, very free. And but I would notice, you know, I was there for several months. I'd notice, you know, being in in satsang, just dialogue with truth, these sessions that, that we would have. You know, I'd go into these very divine places, and then the next morning, you know, it wasn't even the next morning, you know, I'd be, you know, in the line, you know, waiting to get in, like hustling my way to the front of the line to get the best seat, and, you know, who's wearing what clothes, and do I have the right spiritual, you know, like gear on, you know, whatever the trip was. And it's like, wow, look at that, you know, here was yesterday, you know, this bliss of nirvana, you know, just so one with everything, and we're all good, and... And then the next moment, you know, comparing and judging and uh, hustling. You know, I, I, I notice this a lot when I when I, I used to go on retreats with Adi Ashanti, who's a great teacher, and which many of you know. And it was always comical to me what happens is, you know, these beautiful teachings on the absolute and the nature of mind, the unconditioned and and very beautiful. And then in the morning, there's like a kind of a rugby scrum. Same thing, you, the meditation finishes, and then people gather around close to, to him for the, for the satsang, for the dialogue. And there's this like rugby scrum. Of like, who's going to get there first? And who's going to get the best seat and the best view? And, and it's this, this interesting, there it is right there, this juxtaposition of, you know, it's like it's all right here. It's all one. We're already free. We're already awake. But I've got to get to the front and get the best seat. <laughs> You know, and I was on a retreat in um, in IMS where I did a lot of my long retreats, and I was doing a concentration practice for a while, so absorption, very quiet, very still, very deep. And um, and there was one particular person who would always walk outside the, my room in the corridor, do his walking meditation, kind of heavy, kind of kind of loud, you know, loud for me, which was like, didn't take much to be loud. I was very, very quiet and still and slow and these beautiful meditative places. And um, I'd watch my mind going from these really, you know, expanded places to like, oh God, not him again. Oh no, oh no, don't. Why now? I was just getting there. I was just, you know, I was so close. Nirvana was on the door. I was just on the doorstep, you know. And I'd catch it, and I'd have to laugh, you know, say, wait a minute, like, he's just walking outside, and here I am in the bliss of samadhi. And... So another thing, this is, well, actually, I want to read something. Um, and I'll say this piece first. So, one of the things that this has taught me is um, what's well, humbling. <laughs> it's taught me that. No, but it's um, 
the reason I spoke of in this in the beginning about what's important, you know, from a from a Dharma perspective, from the perspective of these practices, is not the experience the, itself, but what unfolds, what arises, what comes out of the experience, what insight, what understanding, what transformation. Because we can spend a lot of our time seeking these very beautiful, blissful experiences. But what's more important than the experience is how it informs our heart, how it informs our being, how it transforms us, how it makes us see that we're not separate, makes us see that we're connected, makes it see that everything has a place and an impact and significance. It makes us see that we're not who we take ourselves to be. You know, these, these insights are very important. They come out of these openings. That's you know, why people drop a lot of acid, you know, mushrooms, you know, because we, we see through a different reality. You know? And that can really transform us. You know? It's how most of this spiritual scene happened, because people dropped a lot of acid in the 60s and got really turned on to, wow, wow, this is not what I thought it was, and then went to India and started meditating, and you know, here we are, 30 years later. <laughs> So that's how it happened. Yeah, you really want to know the story? <laughs> I could get myself into big trouble if I go on. <laughs> so, anyhow, so um, so one one last piece, and then I just want to say some pieces about about how we can cultivate this 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 expansiveness. So one of the things that, that, that inhibits us is the power of our habits, our power of, uh, the power of our tendencies of mind. Buddhism is speaking a lot to the, the nature of you know, our conditioned mind and how we you know, mostly are just habit, neurotic habit, repeating itself and acting itself out, stuck in these cycles. And so the cycles that we're stuck in generally keep us in these smaller radiuses rather than the more expansive places that we can know and touch. And it's important to see those, important to see which habitual tendencies keep you small, keep you limited, keep you confined in a box of concepts and ideas about who you are and what your limits are and what your um, barriers are and obstacles So you all know this, well, some of you know this anyway, this autobiography by Portia Nelson, The Five Short Chapters. People know that? No? Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. She's speaking about the power of habit. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. But it isn't my fault, and it takes forever to find a way out. Sound familiar? The holes that we inhabit. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There was a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. It's the phase of denial. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There was a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. And I get out immediately. This is a place that we most inhabit. We see the hole, we keep falling in, we see that we've fallen in, we pull ourselves out, and then we see the hole and we fall back in. But this is a good step. This, you know, this is a this is a important phase. You know, as, as we become more mindful, we see all the holes that we fall in, and the power of them, the grip of them, and we keep pulling ourselves out. Practice is pulling ourselves out. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. So we, we start to learn, oh, that's really suffering to go down that road of attachment, you know, wanting this person to be how I think they should be, or wanting you know, my life to be as it should be. You know. That's suffering, the grasping, the attachment, the aversion. Chapter 5, I walk down a different street. <laughs> we learn. You know. And then, you know, we do it all again. <laughs> with a different person, or a different job, or a different house, or a different, you know, a most difficult emotion. Or... And then the social activists in the room 
in chapter 6, which he hasn't written about, go down the street and fix the hole. (laughs) (laughs) And then chapter (laughs) 7... The, the Buddhas of the the Buddhas go back down the street they, they actually reopen the hole because <laughs> that's where we learn right that's where we do our trench work so anyhow so just some to close just some supports for our, um, for not being so gripped in the thinking mind to, so we can open to something more expensive so you know, mindfulness really is the ground of, of this practice and, 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 and the ground of any kind, any kind of awakening, or one of the grounds of awakening. Um, so to know when we're caught, to know when we're thinking, to practice unhooking from thinking. There's, there's, there's often not that much we can let go of in life. We talk a lot about letting go, but, you know, if we could let go, we could. But with thoughts, we can. Thoughts, we can, they're very easy to let go of. Thought comes up, oh, you know, I've thought that 50 times already. I've had that argument, you know, 20 times today, you know, and I've given myself a hard time about messing up on that job yesterday 30 times. You know, just let it go. Let it go. Create space. This is from Achan Chari. He says, Within itself, the mind is timeless and naturally peaceful. Rest in this state. If the changing emotions and thoughts cause the mind to forget itself, to be deceived itself, to be deceived and entangled. Your practice is to see this whole process and simply return to the original mind. So we see we get caught and relax. We see we get caught and relax. So another practice is to turn inwards. You know, our orientation, the ego's orientation is external. External orientation, external orientation. What's happening out there? What can I get? How can I get my supplies? How can I get fed? How can I be seen? How can I be mirrored? How can I be acknowledged? How can I get what I want? And very little turning inward. And it's very it's more uncomfortable for that part of the ego to turn inwards. Recognize the peace or quiet or space or pauses that are already here. You know, pay attention for the peace, the pauses, like right now. Maybe, maybe you're feeling a little tired. But there's a, sometimes when we feel tired, there's actually we're more relaxed. There's more peace. There's more space because we're not all tense and we're not the mind's not full with thoughts. So relax into that space. So they talk about awakening being an accident and practice making us more accident prone. So doing things that make us more accident prone. What what allows you to open? Just the question I asked you in the in the beginning. Maybe meditation. Maybe having more silence, you know, just driving without music or the, or the news on the radio, you know, or your cell phone, you just put that all down and you just drive home tonight in silence for half an hour, an hour, however far you live, you know. Enjoy that space, the silence, you know, that can be very supportive, stillness. Being in nature, having contact with a teacher. Going on retreat, retreats, one of the reasons we have retreats is they create this space. This, it's easy to access this. So the question is, you know, for you is, is a question of choice. You know, what are you choosing? What are we choosing? Sometimes it doesn't feel like we have a choice. But there's a lot more choice than, 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 is, than we actually realize. This is part of a poem from Mary, Mary Oliver. She's talking about this, this moment of being touched by nature. And she says, It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. So once we've had a moment, a glimpse, it's useful to reflect on that, to, to dwell on that, to, to, see, to let it inform us in some way. To not just go, oh, that was great, and now I'm going to go have a cup of tea. So I'm going to close with this um, uh, piece from Thomas Merton, who speaks beautifully in different ways about how we drop into this, into the timeless. 
He says, a door opens in the center of our being and we seem to fall through it into immense depths, which, although they are infinite, are all accessible to us. All eternity seems to have become ours in this one placid and breathless contact. A door opens in the center of our being and we seem to fall through it into immense depths. So I wish for you that you fall into immense depths wherever and whenever you are and to make space for that, make room for that. So you had a question. I want to come back I to your question. It was an example oh, great. that uh, was really significant to me as you were talking. I appreciated your talk tonight. And that is, I've been retired a couple of years. I'm in my 70s. And, every, and I don't have a lot of anxiety and I'm not pushing myself. And it's wonderful. Great. Good for <laughs> you. Know, you. Except I get into that a moment of just nothing. Just nothing. I'm just in space. Just, it's wonderful, except mm. I think I've gotten Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it really works that way. You go, oh my God, what day is it? You know, and, uh-huh. and, 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 and I then try to remember, and I think, if I can't remember, is this a sign? You know, and it's that kind of stuff <laughs> that when you, when you have that space and you make an interpretation or you get anxious and you say, what am I anxious about in this space? What could it be? You were talking about that. Somewhat, mm-hmm. but I thought the thing about getting older and getting Alzheimer's and not wanting that space where you don't know where you are. Right. <laughs> That's a great. Thank you. That's a great. Um, it's a different perspective on it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's also the same habitual mind that wants us to be very enmeshed with physical reality that that is it that in it, at that point becomes a hindrance you know because you know it's it, it, it what it's intercepting your your access to just relaxing into that and who cares about what day it is you know in that moment just you know I mean, really you know, so um you know, sometimes we need you know sometimes that the, the, that mind is like an agitated Child, you know that when you, we just need to like, it's okay, relax. You know, you know, we, we can trust that these these minds that we have are very brilliant. They they take you know, they function really well. They they, they come back, <laughs> no matter how far we go into the ether. We come back. You know, phone rings, we pick it up. You know, doorbell rings, we answer the door. It's like we don't have we can trust that. And and then, but to relax into those moments, it's beautiful that, that you retired, have space, less anxious, and that's it. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, but Great. it helps to, to have you talk about it. Tonight. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Other comments, questions, reflections? We have some time, yes, Dawn. Um, so when you uh, go out in nature and you're feeling oneness with nature, 